You're listening to episode 383 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Light. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hey, Max, how are you? I'm good, David. I'm really good. You know, we have a lot of stories tonight, but you know, there's one thing that kept coming up over and over again that I noticed. The use of the term uncrewed aerial systems for UAS. It was just sort of surprising that quite a few of the stories used that terminology for UAS. Okay, so are we going to start saying UCS? No, UCAS, UCAS. UAS, uncrewed aerial systems. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I guess un is not a word, is it? So, <laughs> Well, it, that's as... I mean, we've been talking about that now, I guess, for a couple of years, about gender-neutral pronouns for unmanned systems, you know, so... Uncrewed. I'm, I'm good with that. I think we can go with that. Seems to be taking hold. We're on the, the uncrewed aerial vehicle digest now. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So we got a long list of stuff. NOAA collects lots of data from drones, which is not necessarily a good thing. Drones cover motorsports events. Bad weather affects delivery drones. The Drone Racing League scores a big sponsorship deal. Leonardo and Northrop Grumman working together on urban air mobility. Heavy lift UAS from BAE. Smuggle contraband and go back to prison. Volocopter eyes the U.S. Building better batteries. Yeah, you had to throw in that tongue twister, huh? Building better batteries. I know, and if I could have thought of another B, I would have added it. Build back better, better batteries. Here you go. Build back better batteries? Yeah. Okay. Building better batteries backwards. Drone Safety Awareness Week and the attack of the magpie, which is our video of the week. You know, I, I do love when animals take out drones. Just I, I don't know what it is about that genre of videos, but I do love that so much. It's like the revenge of nature. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think we should get started. Well, our first story comes from fedtechmagazine.com. NOAA data storage needs may grow as drones become smarter. You know, we, we've talked about this was going to be a side effect of drones, and that's volumes of data and, in, and, and sizable increase, increase of data. So NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has been flying lots of drones to help with weather, and evidently they've got a bit of a data issue. They do, and, you know, they measure lots of things. I think we probably think about them as measuring hurricanes. We've talked about, you know, the drones that they drop, uh, the uh, drones that they use to record uh, hurricane uh, data, but they're also active with disaster response and even wildlife monitoring and mapping of seafloors. And they use a variety of different... UAS. They use tube-launched fixed-wing drones. They launch hexacopters. And they've even used NASA's Global Hawk aircraft. In the past, or up to this point anyway, a lot of the data is collected on board, uh, typically onto an SD card. But the amount of data that they are collecting has been increasing. You know, and it's AI-directed data collection with higher-resolution sensors. So um, 
You know, it's hard to imagine filling up an SD card, but clearly you can fill up an SD card, you know, and and maybe they should move away from those 512 megabyte SD cards and move up to maybe a gig. But they've got an issue with uh, how do you deal with that kind of intense data stream? Yeah, there's a data management um, issue. Uh, There's a quote from the director of NOAA's Uncrewed Systems Operations Center. It's Captain Phil Hall. And he said, the amount of data and data services is just the absolute key to all these uncrewed systems. There's uncrewed. Whether they are marine systems or aviation systems. He says, data archiving, data analysis, cloud storage networking, all these areas are priorities for NOAA. So they do have... (laughs) Lots of data, increasing number, uh, increasing quantities of data to uh, to manage. So, um, I guess it's kind of a good problem to have in some ways. FedTech Magazine also had a video, a really nice video. Drones aid NOAA scientists with hurricane tracking and animal monitoring, and it gives you a, a nice view of what all NOAA is doing. With these, uh, with these drones, with these UAS. So we'll have a link to that one in the show notes, of course. And um, the next way is Rallycross. And the best way to watch it, evidently, is from a drone. This story came from Jalopnik. And go ahead, Max. Take it away. This is road racing. This is your baby. You know, I had a kind of a strange reaction to it, though. I'll get to that in a second. But, yeah, they're talking about the World Rallycross event. There was one of those recently in France, and a substantial portion of the video coverage was provided by a drone. And we'll have this video in the show notes. But I was really surprised, David, at uh, how close the drone seemed to get to the to the race cars. Perhaps it just had a you know a, a telephoto lens, but it it gave the appearance of being right on top of the action, and this was not just a drone shot from up high as the cars went through a turn or something. Uh, this was the drone following the cars around the track. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, and um, we should we should also dovetail into um, our last episode of Airplane Geeks where we were talking about aviation videography and and. And the role of drone, and we talked we talked a little bit about the role of drones in filming sporting events, etc. Um, it was kind of jarring, though, flying with the cars. You know, it wasn't a perspective. I guess Max, when I went into the article, I was sort of expecting them to be hovering over a corner somewhere and right. watching them go by. Actively engaging with the cars was sort of surprising, you know, quite good flying, but it really was kind of surprising. It was good flying, pretty high speed flying, but I got slightly nauseous watching this. I, I think, again, it's because what you said, it's it's a different kind of perspective and it's... So in other words, don't get in the car doing it full time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was sort of the same sensations almost, as if you were in the car. I mean, it was following along that, uh, the drone was following along that well. So, yeah, it left me feeling a little a little uneasy, but it's probably just me. But check out the video in the show notes. It's, you know, it's, it's really impressive. And, you know, as you said, it's a, it's a um, good example of really covering an event, <laughs> first-person view, essentially, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, check it out. So, from flyingmag.com, drones fly into weather data deserts. Can they be stopped? Weather data deserts. You know, it's funny, Max, two stories ago we were talking about a surplus of data, and here we're talking about deserts where there is no data at all for the drones to use. This article talks about a study by University of Calgary researchers uh, in a paper they published that looked at the impact of weather on commercial drones. And the way that the uh, the desert idea comes out is that you need really, really good weather data if you're doing something like running a delivery service using drones because uh, these aircraft are generally uh, highly susceptible to to weather. And if it's weather's bad enough, it's too windy or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too rainy, uh, you know, you need to know that because you you might not be able to fly. And uh, my takeaway from this was I, I didn't really think about the weather complications with flying UASs. This does drive home that a UAS system is not necessarily as um, hardy as far as the weather goes as, say, a normal aircraft. I mean, there there's a lot of other effects the weather has on a UAS that it wouldn't necessarily have on an aircraft. And for most drones, weather conditions could limit drone flying time to just a few hours per day, approximately 5.7 hours per day or 23% of that time. Yeah, that's a lot of deliveries got to get done in a very short amount of time. And I know that um, we live, the airport has a UPS facility down the road from it. And at nine o'clock in the morning or earlier, the trucks and the girl are, the convoy starts heading out to do deliveries. So if you're only got five hours, those trucks usually are coming back about five thirty, six o'clock. So a drone would only have a very limited time. So the the five point seven hours per day, or twenty three point six percent of the time, that applies to common drones. But they also, in the study, looked at weather resistant drones, and I'm not sure what the definition of that is, but um, they have more uh, fly time, up to 20.4 hours per day or 85% of the time, which is much higher, but, you know, still not great. That's data from the entire day, all 24 hours. So if you just look at the data from uh, daylight hours, which is when drone deliveries are probably most likely to occur, then the the global flyability goes down to 8.3% for common drones and only 51.3% for weather-resistant drones. So basically what that's saying this simply is that if the drone is weather-resistant, uh, then across, you know, globally and all environments and so forth, you could really only count on them being able to fly half the time, half the day, half the daylight hours. That's pretty low. And single digit overall is really kind of frightening. Yeah. Um, so I, it definitely is an aspect, I think, Max, that you and I should probably keep a little bit more track of because I don't think we've talked about adverse weather and drone flying other than they just don't fly. But 
if we're starting to talk about delivery, those are factors that need to be included in. Yep. But you don't need adverse weather when you're flying indoors through hula hoops. And the Drone Racing League landed a $100 million deal with a crypto platform, Algorand. And this was from CNBC.com. So the sponsorship deal with Boston-based Algorand is worth $100 million over five years, according to those with knowledge of the agreement. So cryptocurrency, uh, I have yet to understand what this is, but evidently it's it's the greatest thing. And um, Drone Racing League has found a sponsor that's basically going to support them for the next five years. It's a really interesting um, arrangement because I think the target audiences are are the same for both of that. The Drone Racing League uh, appeals to uh, Gen Zers out there, Generation Z, but also so does cryptocurrency. Right, us us old guys, I mean, we might like drone racing, but we're not so into uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, the boomers and crypto are kind of eh, you know not so sure, whereas the younger folks are really ready to embrace it. And also uh, the intersection of those markets is pretty great. And so it makes sense. What Algorand gets is title rights to the league. And the DRL starts in its sixth season, hard to believe, sixth season so far, sixth season on September 29th, 2021. So that's coming up pretty fast. Good luck to them on their sixth season. I, you know, we we weren't sure how sustainable it was going to be when we started talking about it seven years ago, but it seems to be chugging along. So our next story was a press release from the Leonardo Company. Leonardo and Northrop Grumman to join forces on future rotorcraft UAS opportunities. So Leonardo, which was originally Augusta Westland, is teaming up with Northrop Grumman. So you've got two powerhouses. Leonardo, of course, is a powerhouse based in Philadelphia. And if you want to learn more about that, go to the American Helicopter Museum at AmericanHelicopter.museum. And um, Northrop Grumman um, is probably got the electronics background is where they're going to come at it. We're not going to be building any cat aircraft, but I have a feeling that they're going to use their electronics information systems to support Leonardo on their rotary wing aircraft. And those two companies have worked together for a long time, since 1980, uh, 1995, uh, on a variety of different projects, uh, including the maritime uncrewed aerial system for the Royal Australian Navy. I think the two companies complement each other pretty well. And so they're going to collaborate on the VTOL design, system architectures, payload optimization, and integration. Uh, I think that's another uh, strong talent for Northrop Grumman is their, you know, integration uh, experience and capabilities. So yeah, this it, it sounds like a good a good link up. Yeah, well, and we'll have to keep following on it. Uh, I'm kind of partial to Leonardo because it's a Philadelphia company. (laughs) And, of course, the nice thing about the Northrop Grumman affiliation is it gets over any hurdles about um, international trademarks, et cetera, and dealing with the U.S. federal government because they they, they could be under the Northrop Grumman brand. The Leonardo AW-139 or the um, H-139 that the Air Force is building is technically a 
Boeing project because they're the overarching contractor and Leonardo is subcontracting the 139. So even though they're doing most of the building, Boeing is the primary. So I'm sure in some cases, having Northrop Grumman as your as your partner will benefit Leonardo. So the T650 starting to really sound like we're coming up on the um, rise of the cyborgs. Um, BAE Systems to build a T650 cargo quadcopter with a 300 kilogram capacity. Heavy lift quadcopter. Yeah, and this is a link up between BAE Systems and Malloy Aeronautics, and they want to develop this all electric heavy lift UAS, uncrewed air system. They're targeting, you know, broad spectrum of markets for this military, security, even civilian customers. But this T650 is, uh, yeah, is pretty significant. Payloads of uh, 300 kilograms, which if you're not uh, a metric guy, that's 660 pounds. It's a pretty, it's a pretty hefty cargo load. With a range of 19 miles on one charge of its batteries, that's kind of impressive. It's got a 50-mile or 80-kilometer range with no payload. It's going to fly autonomously or remote control. So I guess we're moving in the future that everything will start off RC and then go to AI. (laughs) Um, Malloy Aeronautics, I don't know a lot about them, but... Uh, I do see that they were founded in 2013, and they've been conducting research and development on VTOL technology uh, since then, since 2013. And they've focused on heavy lift unmanned vehicles for what you could call the last mile logistics. In working with BAE systems, uh, this might result in a pretty potent product. And this is the kind of thing that you could use for a heavy, where you would use a heavy lift helicopter, you know, like telephone poles or something where you, it 660 pounds could do that kind of pole insertions or something like that, that where you're not really traveling far, but you're doing lifting to um, insert telephone poles or antennas, you know, for broadband, those kind of missions, you could see this being done. It'll be interesting to see how well a quadcopter handles having a slung load um, underneath it, which has always been challenging even for most helicopters. So quadcopter, while stable, having a sling load is a completely different ballgame. So our next story is we haven't had one of these in a long time, and that's your grounded files. Man sentenced to 3.5 plus years in prison in a scheme using drones to smuggle contraband into a federal prison at Fort Dix. This was from Middle Jersey News. So a New Jersey man was sentenced for conspiring to use drones to smuggle cell phones, tobacco, and other items into a federal correctional facility at Fort Dix. Really? A a drone coming over the fence is not going to be noticed, huh? So they had some uh, some strategies for uh, trying to remain undetected. Uh, one is uh, they were ma- trying to make these drops at night when it's dark, um, less easily seen, and they had lights on the drone covered with tape. Now, this uh, particular individual, whose name is Juice, or who goes by Juice, Juice was a former inmate 
Uh, and he participated in uh, multiple deliveries of contraband by drone. They really got him good, David. They, um, they found in his home uh, these cell phones and uh, you know, other records that were just really, really incriminating. So uh, I don't know what tipped them off at the beginning, but they found the evidence in this could have been toast. Could it have been the buzzing of the quadcopter? Perhaps, perhaps. You know, there was one weird thing about this article, David, because it, as you said, it starts off man sentenced to 3.5 plus years in prison. How do you get sentenced to 3.5 plus years? That just, that doesn't make any sense. So this is really an aside. It doesn't have anything to do with drones. But what you find out in the article is the guy was sentenced for 43 months, which is three years and seven months, which is a little bit more than 3.5 years. So I don't know why they just didn't say in the you know in the in the title to the piece he was sentenced 43 to forty three months, months. yeah three point five plus years in prison that's just it just struck me as weird years always sounds much more impressive than months I guess check your style guide folks and and, and go to use use months unless it's like beyond seventy two then go to years right in, in even increments so the next one is from our listener Patrick. Volocopter shares plan to bring eVirtual urban mobility to U.S. starting with Los Angeles. This was from electrek.co, which is E-L-E-C-T-R-E-K. So Urban Movement Labs, or UML, and Volocopter have announced a partnership. Now, Max, I know you're fond of the Volocopter. Well, I I saw it on the ground, and I could have seen it flying in the air if I had been a little bit more attentive diligent. to the schedule. Yeah, diligent. But, uh, of course, Volocopter is the German company. They're backed by Daimler and, and other companies. And I hadn't realized this. They have over 400 current employees. That's a lot. That's just one person per rotor on that, on, on that <laughs> yeah, vehicle. Oh, man. It just seems that way, folks. Sorry. And UML, or Urban Movement Labs... Uh, it's based in L.A., and um, their their thing is they link government, businesses, and, and community members together on uh, transportation challenges. So Volocopter would really like to get into the into the United States, and by working with uh, UML, this is this might be a good strategy to do that. Um, Christian Bauer, who's the, the chief communication officer. For Volocopter said, quote, our partnership with Urban Movement Labs is a great entryway into the U.S. with our innovative UAM services. By leading the conversation about urban air mobility with broad stakeholders in Los Angeles, Volocopter can strategically identify and address how our services can benefit cities in the country. More importantly, we are also gaining real insights into living transportation ecosystems in the U.S. to build the best complementary service to other modes of transportation for future passengers. Well, Los Angeles is probably the optimal place to start this, or maybe Dallas or Texas, but I think Los Angeles is definitely going to be the hot spot. The size of the city, the distances involved, a urban air mobility would seem optimal. So a Volocopter is working on certification from EASA, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency. And they hope to 
get that and be able to launch urban air mobility services in the next two or three years. Uh, of course, to operate in the United States, they would need FAA certification. And they uh, apparently hope to work that um, right on the heels of the uh, EASA certification. So a um, couple of years out, it looks like, but that gives them time to uh, work with their partner, uh, their partner, Urban Movement Labs, and um, sort of set the you know the groundwork uh, in advance of getting the FAA certification. Yeah, and, and the FAA certification might be easier once they get the EASA yeah. certification. You know, with it helps. sort of reciprocity. So, the next story we got from Ian, and this is one for Max because. I didn't know this, but lithium-ion batteries aren't the only lithium batteries. The batteries of the future are set to be cheaper and better just by adding sugar. This was one sweet story. It was. It was. Well, you know, everything from Australia tends to have a sweetness to it. Or or, or it'll kill you, but that's the video of the week. That'll that's, be later. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, people, you know, they talk about lithium-ion batteries, but there are lots of different kinds of lithium batteries. But the lithium-ion batteries are made from some really toxic chemicals as well as from kind of scarce and expensive materials as well, nickel and you know some other things like that. Um, but another type of bat- lithium battery is the lithium-sulfur batteries. And their components or are, are the chemicals that are used in those are a, a lot cheaper, they're safer, and they're much easier to obtain, uh, and they can store more energy per kilogram than lithium-ion batteries, which is great. Sounds good, right? Everything so far sounds terrific. But there's a but. There's always a but. There is a but. And the but with lithium-sulfur batteries is they degrade when they are recharged. And each time you recharge them, you degrade them more. You really have fewer uh, recharge cycles. Not enough. So in uh, in Australia, researchers at Monash University they they might have found a solution, which is oh please let me I I have the perfect answer to this. Go ahead. I, I'm going to go to the the old Disney Mary Poppins. A spoonful of sugar makes the batteries go down. The batteries go down. The batteries go down. Just a spoonful of sugar makes the drones go round <laughs> in the most delightful way. That's true. That's true. So, so yeah. So, how does this sugar? What's this sugar idea? Um, and this may be more details than you want. Kind of make your head explode. But um, in a lithium sulfur battery, the electrode is made of sulfur particles. And the electrode swells when it charges and contracts as it's discharged. So this repeated swelling and contraction, it distorts the electrode, and that's not good. But there's another problem. You get something called polysulfides that form on the anode, and that reduces battery performance. So they solved the electrode distortion by creating what they call a, a springy matrix of carbon and sulfur compounds, this is a quote, that was better able to expand and contract without distortion or cracking. And that got them up to a whopping 200 charge cycles, right? Still not good enough. So as far as the polysulfides, they, this is, and here's where the sugar comes in, they incorporated a glucose-based additive 
into this uh, springy cathode matrix. It stabilized the sulfur and prevented it from dispersing and coating the lithium electrode. And it also, well, this is way too much, but it, it improved the web-like structure of the cathode. So it opened up the matrix so there was more space for lithium ions to interact with the sulfur. And when they did that, they got up to 1,000 charge cycles. Still less than you know, other kinds of batteries, but getting better and not too bad. It's getting better and it's safer. Eventually, if they get it to really work, it'll be, inex- it'll be less expensive than the lithium-ion battery. So interesting technology, you know, and batteries, we've always said, are going to be one of the challenges to urban air mobility and or drones, etc. But you know what? It's National Drone Safety Week. You know, and we're finishing it up as we're recording this on Thursday night, but you still probably could get some some of the insights that came from the FAA reviews, etc. And this article was from dronelife.com. National Drone Safety Awareness Week was hosted by the FAA safety team, FAST. What they've done uh, in conjunction with some others is uh, develop some short daily videos that were published during this week, during National Drone Safety Awareness Week. And these featured important safety topics, and they were a collaboration between Drone Life, P3 Tech Consulting, and Dave Krause, a volunteer FAST member who's also co-founder of Influential Drones. As we record this, um, not all the videos have been released yet, uh, so we can't give you a review of all of them. But you can uh, you can find the videos as they are released in this article, in this Drone Life article that we'll have in the show notes. But you can also find them on the uh, Drone Life TV YouTube channel. And we'll put that, that link in the show notes also. And definitely check them out because everybody could use a reminder on how to fly safe and how to think safely. And they're short, very short, just, you know, a minute or two or three. So, Max, you brought up the fact that things in Australia are sweet, but um, I, I was reminded tonight that things in Australia want to kill you. They, some things. They, some things. Well, in my quest for knowledge and videos, again, we have the infamous nature versus the drone, in this case, a Australian magpie. Um, this was from Drone DJ. And it was Australian pilot Fabio who little quadcopter got taken out by a very large magpie. And eventually it looks like the magpie decided to turn on the pilot too. Yeah, this, this magpie was really ticked off or, or you know, irritated for some reason. And um, this was not just one diving attack on the drone. This thing went after the drone. There's a couple of really good scenes where it's like chasing after it. Evasive maneuvers were being flown by the drone. That's right. Yeah, Fabio did uh, did his best to uh, to uh, stay out of the clutches of this magpie, but it was ultimately unsuccessful. He's quoted as saying, "Everything in Australia wants to kill you, even birds." Well, Max, I think we've done enough talking for the day. What do you think? I feel like I've done enough talking, so. We'll call it quits here, and we want to thank you for listening to the UAV Digest. We really appreciate it. This has been Episode 383, 
So you can find us at theuavdigest.com or you can use the shortcut to go straight to the episode post, which is theuavdigest.com slash 383. And of course, you can join us on our Slack listener team and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at theuavdigest.com and we'll send you an invite. You can join the conversations there as well as finding us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, and don't hesitate to reach out and send us an email like Ian did and Patrick did. We're always looking for stories, and if you have opportunities to see stories, don't hesitate to send it to us. So with that, I'm going to say have a good week. This is David. And this is Max. Thanks for listening. <laughs>